This is Warner Lewis, and welcome to another edition of Lewis at Large, smart talk and conversation with talented people from all walks of life. A reminder to subscribe to these Lewis at Large podcasts, go to Apple, Spotify, or Google Play. And if you like the podcast, hey, let others know about it. For context, my conversation with Dara Horn was recorded in September 2021. Well, to the issue at hand, uh, we're going to be speaking with a, a woman that has never been on our show before, but pleased to have her here, Dara Horn. She is the author of five novels and one of Granta's best young American novelists indeed. She's has taught Hebrew and Yiddish literature at Harvard, Sarah Lawrence College, and Yeshiva University. She lives in the Garden State of New Jersey with her husband and four children. We're going to talk about a brand new work called People Love Dead Jews. Reports from a Haunted Present should be a fascinating conversation indeed. Dara, how are you, my friend? I'm very well. Thanks so much for having me. Pleased to have you here. Let's uh, let's do this. Let's uh, talk to you a little bit and share with our listeners a little bit the path that took to you to being a novelist uh, and also uh, teaching Hebrew and Yiddish literature at Harvard and Sarah Lawrence. Sure. So, um, uh, as, as I like to say, I've been an author for 20 years and a Jew for my entire life. Um, and uh, yeah, maybe we'll get to uh, this, the current book in a moment, but... Um, I you know, was always passionate about the intersections between literature and religion. Um, that's something that um, was always important to me growing up, and uh, that sort of led me toward a study of Hebrew literature. Um, I started learning uh, Yiddish in college. Um, I had learned Hebrew from childhood, and I just became fascinated by these writers who were sort of writing their way into the past. Um, and and also realizing like that this was a world that was very inaccessible to most English speakers and English uh, English readers, and so a lot of my academic work has been to sort of bring that world to life. And in my novels, I'm also in a way doing the same thing. I've written published five novels, and they all deal with uh, Jewish culture, um, but all sort of defined from within that world. So I bring readers of any background in my books. I bring my readers into a world where people are living these lives where they're sort of. Um, wrestling with Jewish tradition in, in, in various ways. I have a book about Jewish spies in the Civil War. I have um, books about, I have a uh, book about a kidnapped uh, software developer who um, sort of her life intersects with this uh, medieval Jewish archive in Egypt. Um, you know, I sort of, I have a lot of, um, I have a lot of novels that sort of take you to different corners of Jewish history. Um, but this book, People Love Dead Jews, is my first nonfiction book. And so that was, um, it's, it's been an adventure. Yeah, I'm curious as to what was it. Uh, was there a particular? Did you just know the moment that I okay at this point I need to stop being a novelist and I need to be someone that that is talking about nonfiction, so to speak, talking about quote reality. What was there a particular moment, or what led you down this path? Sure. So. Um, I mean, look, it's, it's no secret that there's been a tremendous increase in anti-Semitism in the United States and elsewhere in the world in recent years, and I think it's been, you know, I mean, it's been deeply unsettling for uh, American Jews my age. I'm in my 40s, and people my age and younger. Um, but what provoked me to write about this, really, it wasn't just these violent attacks of recent years, but something more subtle, which is that... I started noticing that, um, you know, I often, write, I often write nonfiction for various publications, and I noticed that um, in the past few years, the only thing my editors at 
mainstream publications wanted me to write about was, as I say, dead Jews. Um, I'm going to give just one example of this. I first noticed it in 2018 when Smithsonian Magazine had approached me and asked me to write an essay about Anne Frank. And my first feeling about this was sort of like, wow, I really don't want to take this assignment. But for me as a writer, I noticed the uncomfortable moments are where the story is. So I thought, well, why don't I want to write about this? And then I remembered there had been a news item that year about something that had happened at the Anne Frank Museum. Um, this is a museum in Amsterdam where it has the, these tiny secret rooms where Anne Frank and her family were hiding from the Nazis during World War II. It's now this like you know blockbuster museum. Um, the news item from 2018 was about a young Jewish employee at that museum in Amsterdam, and his employers would not allow him to wear his yarmulke to work. Um, they made him cover it up under a baseball cap. And he appealed to the museum board, and the museum board deliberated about, uh, they, they deliberated about this for about four months, and then they finally relented and let him wear his yarmulke to work. And I just remember reading the story and thinking, you know, four months is a really long time for the Anne Frank Museum to ponder whether or not it was a good idea to force a Jew into hiding. And at that point, I sort of realized that, you know, the museum, the purpose of these kinds of museums is to, like, teach everybody a nice lesson about humanity. And as I put it in my piece for Smithsonian, which is in the book, you know, people love dead Jews, living Jews, not so much. I just noticed there's, there's this public demand that Jews erase their identities in order to deserve this public respect. And, you know, when that piece came out in 2018 in Smithsonian, it was just a few days before the massacre at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. And at that point, editors started calling me again, you know, to write about dead Jews. Um, and I just started thinking, like, why is this happening? And when I say why is this happening, not just why are these attacks happening, but, like, why does everybody want me to say something sad and beautiful and inspiring that's going to flatter everyone involved. And I just thought, you know, there's something, we're, there's something going on here that's a little deeper than just like, oh, this is sad that, you know, these anti-Semitic attacks happen. There's something about the way we're talking about them that is, I think, very detrimental. So, so I completely agree with you, quite frankly, in the con just as, you, as you describe this concept, that there are some people that we like better dead than alive, Elvis being another one. And I'm not making light of that, but I think you sort of yes. understand that concept. Uh, you, we like to think of him as this sort of young, suave singer versus a overweight, aging drug addict at the very end, as harsh as that sounds. But uh, I want to talk a little bit further and dive into this a little bit further. When you were presenting this concept and as you were formulating in your mind and you would maybe would share it with a publisher or other writers or other members of the Jewish community with which you're close, what was their take on it? Did they fully agree or did you have to do some explaining? Um, well, I'll tell you, uh, I can tell that story through the title of the book, um, which I, I mean, I still can't believe my publisher let me keep this title. Um, but, you know, people love dead Jews. Um, you know, when I would tell people that I was writing a book with this title, um, you know, I found that uh, my non-Jewish friends would often be, like, very hesitant about it, like, oh, wow, well, that's really provocative. And um, but my Jewish friends would just laugh because everyone's like, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Um, so, you know, it is something that does require a little explaining because, you know, these things seem very benign, right? Like, you know, what could be bad about, I don't know, Holocaust education, right? How, you know, how is that, you know, 
you know, how is that something that we should think twice about? Um, and but what I really do want to, what I do in my work is, um, I'm I'm a storyteller, so I'm drawing people into these situations. Um, so for the example, the first chapter of the book is about that incident in the Anne Frank Museum, but then I take you into Anne Frank's life. I compare her with other um, Yiddish writers who are writing at the same time, but for a very different audience. Um, I have stories in the book about um, a, a city in China that was built by Jews that all the Jews were forced out of the city, but now the Chinese government has spent $30 million restoring Jewish heritage sites. Um, so I went to China. I visited this city. I'm sort of bringing you there with me. Um, so I think, you know, and I, t- I do this in, in many different instances throughout the book. It's um, Part of the book is about me, um, a sort of a weird circumstance where I was ended up sharing the um, Shakespeare's play, The Merchant of Venice, with my 10-year-old son, and he saw obvious things in it that I had been, you know, sort of forced to not see. Um, so the way that I do this is through storytelling. I'm able to sort of draw people into this point where you, you get to see something from someone else's point of view that maybe you might not have considered. You just joined us. Here's truly Warner Lewis from the Flight Deck, as always, of uh, Lewis at Large. Got a good one going here with uh, Dara Horn. She is a novelist by trade and one of Granta's best young American novelists. She's taught Hebrew uh, and Yiddish literature at Harvard, Sarah Lawrence, and also at Yeshiva University. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, she lives in the fine confines of the Garden State of New Jersey. And a new work called People Love Dead Jews, Reports from a Haunted Present. So my question to you, Dara, is you've sort of explained this concept that we sort of like our Jewish heroes dead better than alive. Um, Is this unique, in your opinion, to Jews, or are there other sects, races, cults, etc., that might fall into this same general family? Oh, I think everyone is invested in this problem, because I think that we pay tribute to diversity in order to make people conform. Um, and so just from my personal experience, I know, this, I know that, for example, as a woman, I know that when I'm you know, giving a public talk or something like that, I'm expected to constantly smile, let's say, you know, even when I'm saying something rather grim. My job as a woman, I'm sort of, I know this, is to make men feel comfortable, right? So, and I think that a lot of minority groups have this similar experience where the priority is on making other people feel good about themselves. And, of course, this is the opposite of what a real investment in real diversity would mean. That would mean letting other people make you feel uncomfortable. It would also mean being curious about the actual content of other people's cultures, beliefs, history, experiences, you know, instead of just, like, turning those stories into or those histories into, like, a feel-good lesson about ourselves. And I do think this is very relevant to, you know, to all your listeners because, you know, the silos that we're stuck in right now, whether it's online or, or in our social lives, I think they reinforce those stories that make us feel good about ourselves. And it's often while denigrating others. And I think, you know, right now we're having this national conversation about how we think about diversity and also how we think about the evils of the past. And, I mean, unfortunately, Jews have thousands of years of accumulated experience and wisdom on this topic. And I think we need to ask ourselves, like, you know, do people really need to erase parts of their identity in order to deserve public respect? So as you travel around the country, uh, again, I'm very curious as to those, the, the Jewish community, uh, whether they're your family, uh, your friends, uh, your faith, whatever, uh, their reaction is the one of acknowledgement, um, 
Do you believe this is a fairly new concept, or do have people felt this for decades? I think people have felt this for thousands of years. <laughs> um, you know, I think that, um, you know, this is something that, you know, it's part of, you know, the Jewish history of, of living in a non-Jewish society, and, you know, there is this, you know, un- unfortunately perverse experience that Jews have had in, you know, in many, so- in many non-Jewish societies where, you know, you're sort of used as, you know, even in the best of circumstances where you're sort of seen as a, a metaphor for somebody else's, you know, you're, you're, you're playing a role in someone else's imagination. And once you recognize that, it's very hard to unsee it. So I, I don't think it's new. I think that what is new, I think, in the American Jewish community is that these sort of, you know, really, you know, violent lethal attacks in recent years have really brought it to the forefront. So, I mean, it is something that is, I mean, it's built also into Jewish tradition. There are, you know, there are aspects of Jewish tradition that are sort of about this problem. Um, there are a lot of, you know, his, you know, a lot of the history and liturgy in Judaism is sort of about this experience of, you know, uh, being in a non-Jewish society. But it's, it's really this sort of, it's become very visceral in recent years for American Jews. Yeah, and, and there are precious few institutions uh, that escape this. There was a, uh, just in our particular area, in the Kansas City area several years ago, was a shooting at a Jewish retirement community. And while it wasn't necessarily uh, the victims, unfortunately, uh, there were, that there were any victims at all, but the victims actually, ironically, were not Jews at all. They were those standing in a parking lot in some other areas that were happening to be visiting friends and relatives, etc. Uh, a question to you, Dara, is as you look at this and you're describing a concept, you're describing a feeling and sort of uh, a, a, a situation that's hard to really fully get your arms around in that it's hard to – while there may be some specifics – Help us out a little bit. What's sort of the fix here, or what is, what's the need? If this is a reaction, what does the reaction need to be? I think the reaction needs to be um, a sense that Jews are not a, a Jews are not a metaphor. Jews are not a symbol for you know whatever you want them to be in the society. That this is a distinct culture that has its own, you know, its own history, its own beliefs, its own you know its its own characteristics. And if we are going to be a truly open society, we have to be welcoming to everyone and not welcoming with conditions. Um, I'm going to give an example of the way uh, of sort of you asked me to ask for the solution, but maybe if I explain something more about the problem, it will help. Um, I think you see this dynamic with um, you know you mentioned that you know the attack in your city a few years ago, um, you know, you see this dynamic often, I think, with the way we talk about contemporary anti-Semitic attacks. We're also often told this, that, you know, oh, the Jews are the canary in the coal mine, you know, anti-Semitic attacks are bad because there's this warning of, you know, bigger social problems. Um, if you think about what that actually means, what you're saying is that, you know, when Jews are murdered or maimed, you know, it might be an ominous sign that real people might later get attacked. I mean, that is a profound affront to human dignity. Um, and also the way that we teach children about, you know, what bigotry means, you know, that it's like, oh, bigotry means you look at other people and you don't realize they're just like you. You know, the way that we have to be, a, uh, you know, an accepting society is recognizing that, you know, we're all the same. These other people are just like us. And it's like, well, Jews spent 3,000 years not being like everyone else. And I think that what the more powerful sort of fix to this is, to go to your question, is to think about um, what it means that if you have a truly open and diverse society, what it means is that allowing people to have different beliefs, different cultures, different experiences is really a testament to freedom. 
right? I think that the, if you think about the history of Jewish people and non-Jewish societies, what you find is that you know, societies that have accepted Jews really have flourished, and it's, the reason is because those are societies where it's possible to believe more than one thing. It's possible to have people from many different ethnic groups. It's possible to have that kind of um, mosaic of people where everybody not just is sort of accepts each other or tolerates each other, but really every person is fully contributing to that society. Um, when you start demanding that people be just like everyone else is where there starts to be problems, and I think that you know, that's the kind of conversation that we're that's really been a problem in American society in recent years where there's this us versus, us versus them mentality. Um, and you see it in the way we talk about the past, but also, of course, in the present. So the question is, with education, with the advantage of time, uh, with social media, with our ability to communicate ideas rapidly, quickly, instantly around the world where all can see, Shouldn't this, in theory, provide a a petri dish, so to speak, where a lot of this can start to change? Or does it, in fact, do the exact opposite? And does it allow for the proliferation of the same concepts you're talking about? I mean, you know, I think we all know the answer to that question. Unfortunately, now, what are we, um, you know, 20 years into the Internet culture? I think everyone had hoped that, you know, all this free, you know, total free access and that anybody can express themselves, that this would be a wonderful way of spreading information. Well, it's also a wonderful way of spreading lies. Um, you know, and this is sort of, you know, a larger problem in our society that goes, you know, far beyond um, any, you know, one group, um, you know, is how do we, you know, how do we train, and I think it has to do with education, right? How do we teach children how to be critical thinkers? Like when you see a source online of information, how do you know that this is a credible source? How do you decide what, you know, how, it's not even about how do you decide what to believe. How do you evaluate things as a thoughtful member of the society? Because that's a requirement now for the society we live in. Um, and again, I think this is something that goes back to Jewish history because um, if you, I think that the way that people are taught about Jewish history in, let's say, public schools is an illustration of the problem. If you think about what normally is in, like, you know, a middle school textbook, if you look in a middle school textbook, what does it say about Jews? There's one paragraph at the beginning of the textbook about something, something about the Israelites. And then there's maybe a chapter at the end of the textbook about the Holocaust. So we're just talking about, like, Jews are people who are dead. And if you think about, like, what, what's lost in that is that just one of many things I could choose, Jewish civilization is very unique in that it's a highly literate civilization. This is through thousands of years of history where you had most populations, only very wealthy people, only very, you know, elite nobles were only the people who knew how to read. This is a society where everyone was trained how to read. It was universal literacy because that's a requirement of the religion because we study the Torah. The Jewish, you know, the Jewish Bible is extremely important. All children were taught how to read, no matter how poor they were. So that is, I mean, if you think about that, what does that show us about what's possible? You know, it's not this world where it's like, well, you know, back then nobody knew how to read. Well, think about applying that to today. What, is it, what would it mean if we really trained all children in critical thinking skills, right? If we were training children from when they were young, not just to read and recite and spit back facts, but to read and analyze and ask questions, which is, of course, another fundamental piece of Jewish civilization that I think could make a huge contribution to our broader society as well. So as we start to wind down here, uh, here's one for you. Um, who loves dead Jews more, uh, American culture or other cultures around the world? Or do we all share the same unique concept? Well, I think the 
there's you know this sort of perverse role that that dead Jews play in the society in the, in the sort of the imagination of a larger society. Um, you know, I mean, and I could go historical on you and and trace this back to you know Christianity and Islam, of course, which are traditions that were foundation. You know, for which Judaism is very foundational, and those traditions, in a lot of ways, sort of were defining themselves in their formative years against. Jewish tradition, so I think that that sort of aspect is kind of baked baked into some you know in, into the the, cult, the Western Western culture in a larger sense. Um, but I do think you know I mean I think we have a unique opportunity in the United States that this is really a culture where you know we don't have this fundamental principle of you know we're all from this one particular you know ethnic heritage or something like that like we do have a, a country that is founded on this idea of diversity right this idea that this is a country of immigrants this is a melting pot that this is you know a place where there's many different different points of view that are going to and that our goal as a society is to, to is for people to be equal under the law not that that always was true but that that's the that that is the ideal of this country and I think that that gives us a unique opportunity to look at Jewish history in a different way also because this is a country that doesn't have a vast uh, you know, sorted history of anti-Semitism the way you have in a lot of other parts of the world. Well, the work is called People Love Dead Jews, Reports from a Haunted Present by uh, novelist Dara Horn. This is her first real nonfiction work. Uh, again, she is a prolific author, uh, and she has also taught Hebrew and Yiddish literature at Harvard and Sarah Lawrence, uh, amongst others. Uh, Dara, uh, fascinating. Before we get out of here, uh, please share with our listeners, if you would, how people can not only pick up a copy of this, but also uh, find out a lot about the past work that you've done, a website. Etc. Sure. Um, so my website is uh, darahorn.com, D-A-R-A-H-O-R-N.com. Um, I you know, occasionally post on Facebook and those kinds of places. Um, uh, I will admit I'm not great at social media, but um, also for um, your listeners, uh, I, this book, People Love Dead Jews, also there's a companion podcast that I've just released called Adventures with Dead Jews, which uh, it's a podcast that tells it's a similar idea from the book, but it tells stories that are not included in the book. And uh, I'll say that, you know, because of what you can do with, with podcasts, and, and you know this better than I do, um, you know, it's, it's actually a lot funnier um, because, you know, there's things you can do with your voice and with music and things like that. And, uh, and some of the stories I'm telling there are, are actually stories that were too outrageous to put in the book. So that's uh, my podcast, Adventures with Dead Jews, which I hope your listeners will uh, check out as well. Well, listen, thank you so much for spending part of your day with us. A, a fascinating concept, and one of which, quite frankly, I I wholeheartedly agree with you on all of this. But uh, would love to have you back on again sometime. Would love to be there. Thank you. You bet. We'll be back with more right after this on Lewis at Large. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you. Well, this, well, thank you for, for giving me the time. I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, good luck with all of this. And, uh, again, hope to talk to you down the road. All right, likewise. Thank right, you. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us for this installment of Lewis at Large. We add new conversations every week, and we like hearing from you. You can contact us via email at warnerflewis1 at gmail.com. That's warnerflewis1 at gmail.com. And you can find out more at lewisatlarge.com or on the Lewis at Large Facebook page. And remember to subscribe to Lewis at Large. Check out Apple, Spotify, or Google Play. Now go have a great day.